Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Goal for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this! How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. It's the first week of December. We're heading into the home stretch of the NFL season, and we have a very little podcast for you this week. We're going to have Tony Dungy, the Hall of Fame NFL coach. He is going to discuss something that uh, is going to garner a lot of attention, a lot of criticism. Um, Hopefully not all criticism, but a lot of attention, a lot of criticism over the next month or two, and that is the NFL's all-time team. Tony and I were two of the 25 voters on that team. Uh, About a third of it has been released to this point, and it's already creating some tempests out in the media and the public. Tony and I are going to discuss that. And also this week, it's going to be a little bit unusual. I'm bringing back an interview I did, a short interview in the summer with Mark Schlereth. You all know him. Uh, He has been on TV for ESPN and Fox. He's now a game analyst for Fox Sports. And I ran into him at Denver Broncos training camp, and he was telling me about the most memorable character he has met in his NFL journeys. And Mark Schlereth is one of the most interesting guys that I've met in all my years covering football. He's an Alaskan. He went to college at Idaho. He is in the Idaho Vandals Athletic Hall of Fame. He's got three Super Bowl rings. He's had 24 surgeries uh, (laughs) with – Uh, encompassing all of the injuries he had as a football player. So he's going to tell you about the most interesting person he's met in all his years in football. And I really want you to listen to it. It's going to be an awful lot of fun. But first, you know, I haven't done this before. And when you guys hear this, guys, gals, adults, children, whoever, when you hear this, I'd love to hear your comments on whether you like this, don't like it, want to hear more conversations, um, unless me, which is absolutely, totally fine. Pardon for the bong there. Um, But I just thought there were a couple of things I had in my column this week that I wanted you to hear because they're with people who uh, I've really kind of grown to like. Uh, And I don't know either of them very well at all. 
but I just have some admiration for you. So I'm going to set the scene a little bit, and some of you may have already read this if you've read my column this week, but I just wanted to make sure that as wide an audience as possible got to hear about George Kittle and also got to hear about Sean McDermott. So I'm going to start with McDermott. Uh, the Buffalo Bills are 9-3. and three. McDermott is having a very, very good year as the coach of the Bills. Certainly will be a candidate for coach of the year. They vastly overachieved uh, compared to what everybody thought. And uh, I talked to him after they beat Dallas on Thanksgiving. And we talked a lot about John Brown. Do you know who John Brown is? He's a wide receiver for the Bills who is in his first year with the team. He's been on Arizona. He's been on Baltimore. Journeyman, really fast, whip-it-like fast receiver. And uh, Bruce Arians loved him in Arizona. He just couldn't stay on the field. The Ravens liked him too. Uh, but uh, at the end of last year, they let him see greener pastures, and here he is in Buffalo. You may have seen on Thanksgiving two plays that kind of blew me away. One... Now, John Brown has played nine years of collegiate and pro football. In his entire career, he's never thrown a pass. And I was very curious about that because I looked it up. I believe that Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the telecast said that he had never thrown a pass. So I, I asked, uh, I asked uh, Sean McDermott about it after the game. And so here's what he said to me. Now, this is quoting Sean McDermott. He's a great example of our guys. Well coached, fundamentally sound. And we coach the fundamentals every day. He buys into everything we ask. And I said, but what about the pass? He'd never thrown a pass before at any level. McDermott said, it was one day in training camp. You know, you've got a lot of practices. You want to check some boxes. We thought, let's see who can throw it. So now I give the credit to Brian Dable, who's the offensive coordinator. He comes to me after he has all his guys throwing the ball, and he says, hey, John Brown throws it pretty good. We think maybe he could do it. So the last maybe five weeks we've been practicing it, waiting for the right time to run it. It's a good gadget to have. And today I said, let's trust these guys. They can do it. So the reason I wanted to introduce that to you is just that Bill Parcells always used to say that some of the non-stars on your roster, sometimes the 43rd guy, the 48th guy, the 50th guy on your roster is going to win a game is going to do something at the end of a game that is so huge, it's going to win the game. Now, that's not what John Brown is. He's a top 25 player on the Bills somewhere in there, and he's, he's important to what they do. But my point is that the Buffalo Bills, I mean, they probably would have won that game without that play. But that broke open a 7-7 game at the end of the first half. And that really opened the floodgates, and the Bills obviously went on to win the game. And the reason I bring it up is that that is coaching. You take a guy who has never thrown a pass in his life, 
and he throws a pass. He throws it beautifully to Devin Singletary, wide open downfield, 31 yards it traveled in the air, nice spiral, and he catches it and runs into the end zone touchdown. And I just, I love that aspect of coaching. I love guys sitting there and saying, why can't we this week have John Brown, who's never thrown a pass in his life, why can't we play some trickeration and let's have John Brown throw a pass? And look, it doesn't always work, uh, but I admire coaches who think outside the box and who think of things that, hey, if that doesn't work, they're saying, what are you doing having a guy who – Having a guy throw a flutter ball, he's never thrown a pass in his life. But that is not what uh, Sean McDermott was afraid of. That was not what D uh, Brian Dayball was afraid of. They thought, he can do it, let's let him do it. And they did it, and that really helped them win a very important game on their schedule. So that's number one. Number two, George Kittle, tight end for the 49ers. Last week, I was in San Francisco. Uh, I went to the Packers 49ers game, talked to Kittle some after the game. Um, pleasant guy, loves football, just loves football. So we talked for a little bit about that love of football, where it comes from. His dad was a captain uh, at Iowa um, in the late 70s. And uh, so... I I really wanted to get to the bottom of, with George Kittle, what would make you want to play football with a significantly cracked bone in your ankle that the doctors say, hey, look, the bone is totally chipped off. It can't get worse, but it's not going to heal during the season unless you till you give it significant time to heal. It's just a matter of pain tolerance. And Kyle Shanahan said, look, doctors said it's not going to get any worse. Uh, it's his, it's got to be a personal choice. So you basically have to uh, decide how much pain that you can tolerate. So this is what I wrote about Kittle. Um, a week later, after that, um, this past Monday, after the 49ers lost uh, at Baltimore. All right. Kittle, the third-year tight end from Iowa, made a notable return in Week 12, playing with a cracked bone in his ankle and a related knee injury. On Sunday, in the Niners' 20-17 loss in Baltimore, Kittle was an Ironman, playing all 55 offensive snaps. Here's what Kittle says. So when something like this happens and you're told you're not going to injure it any further and it's just a matter of pain tolerance, you know it's going to be really painful but it's a mindset. We're football players. This is football season. One thing I've always felt about football is one of the most important things about ability is availability. So I'm playing and I want to play. The mindset comes straight from my dad. I think I've been catching a football since I could walk or actually really crawl basically. My dad played at Iowa from 78 to 81 and I kind of followed in his footsteps. His passion for the game just bled into me. I just, I can't really get enough of it at any time. It's too much fun for me. The fact that I get to play football and it's my job, I wake up every day living my dream. 
part of what came from dad is toughness. He tore his ACL during his last season, and in those days, you didn't do surgery on that. They casted him up for like six weeks. Iowa made the Rose Bowl that year, and he came back for the game, and he played in that Rose Bowl. I mean, if he can do that, I can come back and play with this. So there's a little view into the mind of George Kittle, one of the best tight ends in the NFL. With that, we'll go to Tony Dungy. Chatted with him this week about the NFL's all-time team, and here is what we talked about. Really happy to be joined by Tony Dungy, the Hall of Fame NFL coach, uh, and now the uh, broadcaster for NBC. He does Football Night in America. Tony and I uh, sat together in a viewing room on Sunday afternoons for a few years, uh, getting ready for the Football Night in America show. And um, But I'm bringing Tony on to talk today about the NFL's all-time team, the 100-year team uh, that he and I were voters on. And I want to take you into the process a little bit. Uh, but first, Tony, thanks a lot for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. It's been a while since we've had a chance to, to talk for an extended period of time, so I'm looking forward to it. Good. So, Tony, before we start, I'm just going to let people know how exactly this team was chosen, okay? So, uh, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, the NFL put together a, uh, a committee of 25 people, some former players, some former coaches, uh, some media people, and some former front office people. Ron Wolf was on it, Ernie Accorsi, Ozzie Newsom. I sat next to Art Shell at a meeting. Uh, Tony, you were involved. Um, Bill Polian was involved. Ernie Accorsi. Uh, I was involved. Judy Batista from NFL Network. Uh, Rick Gosselin, the, the veteran NFL writer from Dallas. Jared Bell from USA Today. So quite a good cross-section. Bill Belichick and John Madden. Uh, were involved and were big uh, presences, if that's the correct way to put it, on the committee. So I'm going to first say what the ground rules were, all right? And one of the ground rules was that we were asked to vote for a certain number of people at each position. Um, for instance, we voted for a set number of players at each position group we did not vote for players in order. In other words, right. we didn't go 1 to 12 on the running backs. We just voted for the people who we felt were the 12 best running backs of all time. Uh, we voted for the 10 quarterbacks we felt were the best. The 10 wide receivers, the 6 middle and inside linebackers, uh, 6 outside linebackers. And so we went position by position. And basically, we elected 55 players on offense, 39 on defense, and six on special teams. The committee had two fairly long conference calls in April of 2018 um, to go over the nominating process and to talk about people. Um, at that time, uh, a, um, a subcommittee 
uh, of John Madden and Bill Belichick were uh, were named to look at some of the real old timers, the guys from say the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But I think basically the pre-World War II players who a lot of people on the committee were going to need help with identifying who were the best players in the 20s and 30s. Um, We voted to trim the list of everyone we were talking about to 160 uh, in May of 2018, got together for in New York for one long meeting to talk about the finalist group, and then basically voted uh, for our 100, each of us individually. Uh, and as of now, week by week, as we talk about this right now, Tony, you might be in a different place than I am, but I don't know who's on this list. You know, I don't know no, who the, exactly we know right. who yeah. the, yeah, we know who the running backs were because that was on TV. We know who the um, the the front, all the front seven players were, the defensive linemen and the linebackers. But as of now, as we record this, you know, on Tuesday, what, December 3rd, um, we do not know anything else about who, I mean, we know the finalists of the group that's going to be announced Friday, but... Uh, essentially, you know, this was done the same way Hall of Fame voting is done, that we vote, and then when it's announced, that's when we find out. So for those who think, well, you know, know, who's really on it? Who are the quarterbacks who are going to make it? What, What were the toughest calls? Well, you know, we can talk about that, but essentially, as you know, Tony, we find out when the public finds out. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I basically am curious about a few things, I, I, and, and we've never talked about this, but I wonder, first of all, when you sat down and started looking at the tremendous number of players who were involved in this, what did you base your decisions on when you were trying to thin the herd of these great, great football players? Yeah, it was a, a tough deal. Um, number one, I, I felt like I had a great background from 1977 on. I, I studied a lot of guys when I came in the league as a rookie. Obviously, you're coaching, you're watching a lot of tape for 28 years. I felt like I had a good handle on players from the last 40 years. But it's still tough when you're talking about 10 quarterbacks and you're going to leave off some great, great players. How, how do you draw the line between player A and player B. That was difficult. And then when you go back beyond that, um, how do you know and how do you determine how dominant a guy was in that era? How would he compare to a guy in the 70s or 80s? I I was telling um, some people, you know, just defensive backs, for instance. I played with Mel Blunt. I saw him practice, saw him do everything day after day. I coached Rod Woodson, and I saw the same thing for years. So I I had a good comparison there when I'm talking about those two guys. But then you go back, Night Train Lane, I was five years old watching with my dad, and he looked like a larger-than-life person. But how do I compare him to Mel Blunt and Rod Woodson? And then go back even farther to Emlyn Tunnell, who I just heard about from my dad but never saw him play. Uh, and, And, you know, people like Bill Belichick and John Madden were great in terms of telling us about 
those people, but still comparing them was really, really difficult. And then you got different eras. Uh, I played with Lynn Swan and John Stallworth, and to me, two of the greatest wide receivers ever. But they're catching 45 passes a year because it was that's the way the game was played then. And now you've got guys, you know, Michael Thomas is going to catch 150 balls. So how do you compare that? Well, in my mind, I know Swan and Stallworth that they're playing today with these rules. They're going to catch 150 balls too. But uh, how do you compare that? And that, that was the tough thing. You know, I, I'll tell you, Tony, one of the things that I kept thinking about is that we're going to leave a great player from the 20s, 30s, and 40s off this list because basically we we probably have a little bit of recency bias, you know, from, Absolutely. say, the 70s on. You know, I'm 62 years old, and you're talking about Night Train Lane, watching them when you were five, and so... I really, really wanted to respect, um, you know, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. How did you handle that, and how much weight did you give, um, say, John Madden and Bill Belichick after they had watched a bunch of the old grainy film on those guys? Well, I listened to them. I tried to watch the tape uh, as much as you could and, and go back, but I really did the research and read up how dominant was a, a guy like that? How dominant was Don Hudson in his statistics compared to other people? You know, when, when kickers are kicking at 38% and Jan Stenerud is kicking at 55%, well, now we're kicking it at 80 and 90%, but we have special teams coaches. We have special teams practice and guys kicking every day. And it wasn't like that then. So uh, in, in those elements, you know, how good was John Stenerou compared to Adam Benatari and all the extra work that we do now? So those were the things you, you tried to think of and look at it, read a, about it. And what it came down to for me was how dominant was this guy in his era compared to the people he was playing against? Yeah, I, I would agree. I, uh, you know, Hudson in particular was sort of a slam dunk when he retired you know, he had 99 touchdown receptions. That record stood for 45 years. He retired <laughs> at 45. Yes. And that record stood until, or 44 years, the record stood until Steve Largent broke it in 89. So, um, I and, you know, I think the other part of this that was hard for me, it, because I wrote a pro football history book about, Oh, geez, now it's almost been 30 years ago. And one of the things that I discovered is that there were so many different, It's it's it was almost a different game with a different pool of players because, you know, for the first 25 years of this game, uh, you know, it was an all-white game. Yes. And yeah. not only not only that, but in in wartime, both in the very early parts of the game when – when guys were still coming back from World World War One, and then for five years in the forties, you know there, there were so many good athletes that were fighting the war. You know, then what do you? When Sammy Baugh led the league in punting and in interceptions and in passing, and when I mean interceptions, I mean as a safety. Yeah, as you a, know, yeah, so uh, yeah. it seems it seems like that is the greatest year that a player has ever had in history, but 
you also have to compare it to, you know, the pool of players, you know, who were playing then. So there were so many things and there were so many reasons why this could easily be debated for years, the choices that you make. No, you're right. And, uh, you know, my dad told me about the 40s and Paul Brown, you know, the NFL was was the king and, and the Cleveland Browns come in and Paul Brown comes with Len Ford and Marion Motley and uh, brings these African-American players in and, and beats the defending NFL champions, you know, like a drum. And so you, you do have to say, well, yeah, gosh, there were some great players playing then, but there were also some great players who weren't playing who, who made that right. pool a little bit different. You're absolutely right. Tony, um, one of the criticisms, which I think is valid, quite honestly, is at least in the first two classes, you know, the running backs at, and then the front seven players, there was no running back of the 12 who's played in the last 15 years, since 2005. Uh, uh, Emmett Smith retired, I think, in either 04 or 05. I'm forgetting now. Um, but since then, none of the great backs of today, and I'm thinking mostly Adrian Peterson and and uh, LaDainian Tomlinson, Tomlinson, Marshall Falk. Marshall Falk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and none of those guys those are on. Guys and how many gray hairs they gave me, <laughs> I, I know, and I understand. But you talk about the, the the bias and recency bias, and then, you know, what's in your eyes. I still, it's hard for me to imagine somebody being more dominant than Jim Brown. And if we had a vote for the number right. one guy in football, I'm voting for Jim Brown because I saw him when I was a little kid. He was the first guy my dad took me to see. Coach Noel, my coach, has told me how great Jim Brown was and how dominant he was in that era. And it's hard for me to imagine another player as good as Jim Brown. But then you look at what these guys do and the speed that they have. And, you know, these guys are track men uh, who could catch the ball and did all kinds of things and, you know, were just tremendous. So it, it was very, very difficult. And I do think that, that maybe the players from the 2000s, um, we just kind of said, gosh, we, we haven't seen enough of the guys who are still playing or we have that, that fondness in our mind of what the, the older group was. But it was it's difficult, no question. Yeah, I the way I looked at it was this. Um, I voted for Adrian Peterson. I did not vote for Earl Campbell. Um, and as I've, I, I wrote this, obviously every decision is difficult, but I do think that the past 15 years and the players of today, uh, and, and again, we'll see how it, how it all, uh, how it all ends up, uh, because we've just seen, I guess, two of the six shows now. And so, you know, we'll see how it ends up, but, but I, I would hope like in the defensive line show, uh, I said to myself, man, how could JJ Watt not be on this team? You know, there's only been one now they've only done defensive player of the year since 71, but there's only been one guy voted defensive player of the year more, uh, than JJ Watt. There's only one of those guys. And so I, I just thought, and again, no disrespect in any way to like Leroy Selman or Gino Marchetti. And I, in fact, voted for Marchetti. 
But I, I mean, I voted for J.J. Watt too, and I just think that I, I, I just hope that we, uh, we represent today's players on this list as well. No, it, it was really hard. You know, I, I played with Joe Green. I, I thought he was the cornerstone, the rock. I mean, I'm, I'm voting for Joe Green because of how great he was. Right. But Joe Green was 280 pounds. Warren Sapp played for me. Warren Sapp did a lot of the same things Joe Green did, was faster than Joe Green, and was 305 pounds. He was 30 pounds bigger than Joe Green. You know, it's, it's hard for us yeah. to imagine that. But some J.J. Watt, you, you're right. I mean, some of the things that these guys are doing now, it, it just it, it boggles the mind. But you had to try to talk about how dominant was each guy in his era. Tony, um, a list like this obviously is going to garner um, a lot of arguments, a lot of disagreements. But in the first two that you've seen that have come out, that I guess we've now had 35 of the 100 players come out. Uh, is there anybody either at linebacker, defensive line, or running back that who you voted for who didn't get in, who you say, I wish that guy got in? Uh, probably Warren Sapp is, is the biggest one for me because I know how, how great he was and, and what he did, and, and I've got that personal connection and tie-in, having coached him for six years. Uh, but it, you knew it was going to be that way. It, it was going to be hard. And as you're voting, you're thinking, how can I leave this guy off? How can I not vote for this guy? Uh, it's just right. it was a hard process, and you had to draw the line somewhere, and you know some great players are going to get left off. How could J.J. Watt not how could you not vote for him but then when you try to leave someone else off it just it was very very difficult yeah finishing up with tony dungy um tony one other thing about the process that that i found really interesting and that is when you voted for a limited number of guys at each position you're a guy who had more uh, who obviously played in the league, you know, as a as a safety and you know as a defensive back. When you see that there's 55 offensive players and 39 defensive players, would you have liked to see that a little bit more aligned, a little bit more uh, close <laughs> <Yes>. to ground zero? <laughs> yes, you know that. But it, you knew that was going to be the way it was when you. You have so many statistics and so many people that play on offense that people are familiar with. And how are you going to leave off Gale Sayers? You know, um, so we've right. got to have more running backs, and and then you're even quarterbacks. I mean, ten quarterbacks. Come on, what other position? That single position had ten guys. That to me was the toughest thing, by the way. You know, the quarterbacks because mm. at the end of the day. You know, you say, how can you not vote for Fran Tarkenton? And people of a certain age will understand that. And people who are very young who are listening to this, they might have heard of Fran Tarkenton. But, I mean, Fran Tarkenton was a little, uh, it was a pre-Lamar Jackson, Lamar yeah. Jackson. Yeah. You yeah. know, he was yeah. just, he was such yeah. a fun, he was he was flutie. You know, who threw for 47,000 yards, who threw for more yards than any passer in the first 75 years of the game. So those are the kind of things that 
were almost torturous to me. Uh, no, you, you know when, really, when you have to when you have to live leave off a bunch of guys like that. And then you think about the guys like Tarkenton in their era. Can I leave Sammy Ball off? Otto Graham and all the things that he did, and, and being in all the championship right. games, and then Bobby Lane and, and guys that my dad used to talk about. So, you know, you said, well, I've got to have Lane on, I've got to have Graham on, I've got to have Sammy Ball, and now you, you kind of run out. And now we're getting to Manning and Brady. Uh, we got to put them on. Who who do you leave off? And, and every every decade probably had three quarterbacks that you say, I can't leave him off. So it was right, hard. Exactly, exactly. Tony, I'm going to finish up with this. Um, I am, uh, when I look at your life and your career, and it's such an interesting, interesting life. Uh, and, and, and then I don't know how many people know that when you played college football in the mid-70s at the University of Minnesota, you were a quarterback. And I think it is so interesting now when I look at football. And, I, and I'm asking you this question because obviously you were a quarterback in college who went to the NFL and played safety. You played a little bit of quarterback, but most mostly you were a defensive back in the NFL. And now you look at football and you see that if there was a vote for MVP today and you had to pick your top whatever, probably number one is Lamar Jackson. Number two is Russell Wilson. Maybe number three, Deshaun Watson. Maybe number four, Patrick Mahomes. We could argue about all these, Michael Thomas and all this. But you could argue that the top three or four candidates for most valuable player in the NFL in the 100th year of its existence are all black quarterbacks. And I just want to know from your perspective, what does that say to you? What do you think when you hear that? Well, I think we've made a lot of progress and it's great to see you. You mentioned me. I, I was came out in 1976 and I played a game my senior year in college I was at University of Minnesota. Warren Moon was the quarterback for the Washington Huskies. We played against each other. I was leading the Big Ten in passing. Warren was leading the Pac-8, maybe it was, at that time in passing. But I didn't get drafted. I had a chance to go to Canada, but I wanted to play in the NFL. And I, I went to Pittsburgh as a safety. Warren didn't get drafted. He went to Canadian League, Edmonton, won five Grey Cups, and came back. But it was that it was a different game. It was a different era, and we all thought, boy, if we got a chance, we could do something. And you saw guys. Chuck Ely was a little bit ahead of me at University of Toledo. Never lost a game in high in college. Played at Toledo and wow. was undefeated. Didn't get a chance. Didn't get drafted. Went to Canada and won the Grey Cup. Conrad Holloway was a great quarterback at University of Tennessee. Went to Canada. And, you know, we, we all said to ourselves, boy, if these guys got a chance to play in the NFL, they could do some of the things that, that we're seeing now. But those, it was a different game. Uh, it, people didn't look at it that way. They didn't want the athletic quarterback. Fran Tarkenton was an anomaly. And so yeah, you either went to Canada or you switched positions. But now Robert Griffin and Russell Wilson, they're getting an opportunity 
coaches are changing. Hey, I'm going to do what these guys can do well. Lamar Jackson's offense is completely different than any offense we've seen in the NFL, and it's exciting. So I, I think it's a, a positive for the league and positive for the fans and to get to see what some of these guys can do. It's really been fun to watch. What was lost in the 60s and 70s, Tony? Oh, some great, great athletes, great leaders, guys who would have been tremendous players. And uh, I think some of the excitement of having to defend these guys. But, yeah, there, there were, I mean, gosh, Eldridge Dickey was, ended up being a number one draft choice for the Oakland Raiders, and they moved into wide receiver. But he was, he was Lamar Jackson, you know, and, and wow. there were a, a bunch of guys. Charlie Ward, I thought, was going to be Joe Montana. And Charlie one said, hey, I have a chance to play NBA basketball. So somebody is, you know, not going to say they're going to tailor their offense to me and draft me high. Um, you know, I'm not going to go to Canada. I'll go to the NBA. But I, I thought Charlie Ward would have been Joe Montana. And so losing those guys, we're starting to see them now. And, and that, to me, was what was lost in that era. Tony Dungy, really interesting thoughts both on the all-time team and on the state of quarterbacking yesterday and today. I really, really appreciate you taking some time, Tony. Thanks. Hey, Peter. No, always good to be with you. And you got to come back and see us in the viewing room someday. <laughs> hey, it's the best place in the world. There's food. <laughs> there's nine. There's nine games on the big screen watching it all at once. It's really, those are some great fantastic. Sundays in my life. Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, all the best to you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. All right. You have a good day. Thanks. And now let's hear from Mark Schlereth, the three-time Super Bowl champion offensive lineman who now does radio in Denver, and he also does Fox NFL analysis. We talked about the guy who he feels is the toughest and most interesting guy he ever met in the NFL. Explain exactly why. Right. And well, tell people yeah. who Jumpy Gathers was. So Jumpy Gathers is like we always talk about guys that are legends of the game that the general public doesn't know about. They're like locker room legends, right? And Jumpy Gathers was probably the biggest locker room legend. Like, he was folk, uh, folklore in my NFL days. And so I had the opportunity to play with Jumpy Gathers in Washington. And Jumpy Gathers was coming from New Orleans that had that dominant defense with the Jumpy was part of that defense. and Sam Mills, Sam Ricky Mills, Jackson. Ricky Jackson, yeah. Vaughn Johnson. Yeah. You know, I mean, they were Patrick Swilling. I mean, they, they had this unbelievable defense. So he comes to Washington after two years in a row of ACL reconstructions, right? And so he's on the, you know, on the IR at the beginning of the year. And Jumpy's always hanging around the locker room, always has a cigar. You know, he's six foot seven, 305 pounds, chiseled from a piece of granite. A cigar in the locker room? Oh, always, always. <laughs> and, I mean, didn't You lift. don't see many cigars in locker rooms these days. When I came in the NFL, guys still smoked at halftime in the locker room. Like, like, <laughs> guys are, like, I walk in and guys are, you know, are hitting heaters in the locker room at halftime. You're like, what is it? Where do, what do I get into here? So, Jumpy always had this cigar, and he's always, you know, like I said, he's larger than life, 6'5", 290, 295, didn't lift. He was just put, to, and not like not an ounce of body fat on the guy, right? 
So we used to give them all kinds of grief. We'd get them frustrated. You know, the offensive line sat on one corner, right, of the, of the locker room, and the defense sat right across from us. So we're giving him grief, and we get him all riled up one day. It's about a week before he comes out to practice, and now he's fuming. He is so pissed off. Like, he is just angry at us, right? And finally, he just bursts and he goes when I come out to practice he goes Jimmy Lachey next week I'm gonna line up against you I'm gonna forklift you dump your ass on top of the quarterback Raleigh McKenzie I'm gonna do it to you next Jeff Bostick to you stink to you and then Joe Jacoby I'm gonna finish with you five in a row I'm gonna dump all your asses on the quarterback and we're like oh you're gonna dump us on the quarterback who jump gathers <laughs> right you broken old knee you know blah 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 and so we're we're killing him right so he comes out to practice and we're doing one-on-ones it's a Thursday and it's his first day of practice, and I swear to you, he lines up on Jimmy Lachey. He does the forklift move, his legendary move, picks Jimmy Lachey off the ground at 6'6", 295, and walks him on top of the quarterback, dumps him. Then he walks back to the line of scrimmage, goes, let's go, Raleigh. Raleigh McKenzie, we used to call him Law Machine because he was the best <laughs> pass protector I've ever watched, right? He picks up Raleigh McKenzie, dumps him on top of the quarterback. Bosco, let's go. Picks Bosco up, runs him. He picks me up, and I'm like the strongest human on the okay, planet. Okay, but wait a second. You had to be thinking at this time. Maybe oh, what I, I was thinking was, oh shit, this is what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's a monster. So he picks me up. My, my little feet are dangling off the ground. I'm trying to get back. He dumps me on top. Then Joe Jacoby, six seven, you know, three oh five picks his ass up, drops him on top of the quarterback. And at that point, we're all like, who is this freak show, Jumpy Gathers. Peter, I kid you not, I have watched him make dudes in a game cry. I can't block him, man. He's like, I'll block him. I need help, you know. I mean, he was the largest freak show of a man that you have ever seen so in your why, time. So why isn't he an all-timer? Why right. Why do we not talk about him like we talk about Jerome Brown or right. Reggie Cause, White? Because Jumpy, Jumpy is one of the interest, most interesting characters in, in NFL history. Like, his motto was, pay me but don't play me. That was, <laughs> that was Jumpy Gather's motto. So Jumpy and I have this interesting history because we played in Washington together. And, like, he had Jumpy Gather's Day in the little town he was from, South Carolina. And I went down for Jumpy Gather's Day. Right, well, it was on the fire truck, you know, and they were honoring Jumpy Gathers, right? So Jumpy Gathers and I had this interesting, like, this kind of interesting um, relationship, and he really appreciated that I would come down for that. And then there's two things, a couple things that happened. He loved my dad because my dad is just a freak of nature, right? And he thought my dad was cool. And my dad Your dad was a big weightlifter too, right? Right. Even though he's a smaller guy, my dad on his 78th birthday benched 300 pounds. Like, my dad is – like, if I showed you a picture of my dad, you would freak out. Yeah. Like, actually, I will show you as I'm talking a picture of my father. He'll turn 80 in August. And when you see this picture of my father, you're going to go, dude, that looks like it's – that looks like it's doctored. I mean, that's how – that's how incredible, you know, my father. Where's your father live? He lives in Anchorage, Alaska, and yep. uh, you know where I, where I grew up. And my dad is uh, is a freak show. So he, but Jumpy loved my father. He, uh, this is my father a couple of months ago. That's seventy nine years old. That is ridiculous. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's still he's still put together. Yep. Anyhow, so Jumpy loved my father. My father brought him a pocket knife that was engraved. So then my, my Jumpy thought my dad was the coolest thing ever. I went to Jumpy Day. And then one time in the weight room, because Jumpy was a freak show strength-wise, he, uh, he challenged me to a bench-off. 
So, you know, I've always been this super This is during strong. the season? This is during the season um, in Washington. Challenged me to bench off. And I said, all right, it's like a Friday after practice, right? So we start, you know, at like 4.05, both get it easy. Then we go to 4.50, both get it easy. 4.75, both get it easy. We go to 5.05, both push it. So we go to 5.25, and Jumpy misses it, and I, and I bench it. And so at that point, he was all of a sudden, he's like, I'm, I, I must have been the first guy ever be, beat him in a bench contest. So then he was like, and like, Jumpy won. I lift it all the time. And I, you know, I'm a fairly short-armed guy. Jumpy's 6'7", and got these long levers. Like, there's no way he should be able to bench that much weight. But he was just naturally just strong as the day is long. Yeah. So Jumpy and I had this real unique relationship. So I'm playing against Jumpy. He goes to Atlanta, and I'm still in Washington. This is late in his career. This is later in his career. Yeah. Um, and he goes to he goes to Atlanta. So we've got to play the Falcons in RFK. And I'm playing against Jumpy. And I know that, like, I, I can't block Jumpy Gathers. Like, if, if we get in a one-on-one situation, he's just going to walk me back to the quarterback. Jumpy didn't – we didn't bust a grape. We, <laughs> we literally played patty cake. And which I was thankful for, like, like if you're not going to play hard, it's good. Like, that's good for me because I can stand there and I get my guy blocked, right? So after the game, he literally is down in the tunnel of RFK. And he's like, you know, I could have whipped your ass today. I go, yeah, I know. I know you could have, and I appreciate that you didn't. <laughs> and then we ended up playing here together in Denver. And Jumpy, when he signed here, George Dyer was a D-line coach. Mike Shanahan was the, the head coach. He goes, all right, one thing. Um, he goes, I just am going to tell you guys this. You line me up against Stink in practice or in one-on-ones, he goes, I'm not going to pass rush the guy. He goes, I won't. He like, Stink is my guy. You mean I'll, I'll take the playoff? Right. I will take the playoff if you line me up against Stink. Oh. And so it, and it happened, you know, more than one occasion where, you know, we're doing a two-minute drill or whatever, and Jumpy's lined up against me, and he, like, steps across the ball and lets me grab his chest, and he just stands there. And that was we just this, this <laughs> oddest relationship <laughs> – but I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, America doesn't know anything about Jumpy Gathers. He is a legend in the NFL, and he made guys piss down their leg. Like, when he lined up, if he, was gonna, if he wanted to forklift you and take your ass to the quarterback, it was done. I mean, it was over. He was, he was the, he's the most iconic, most, I mean, like I said, folklore. Like, he is a, a, a freak of the NFL that people don't know about. The great and powerful Mark Schlereth with the legend of Jumpy Gathers. Thank you. You got it, my friend. My thanks to Tony Dungy and Mark Schlereth. Really interesting conversations this week. And let me know. at uh, You can email me about the podcast at peterkingfmia at gmail.com. That's peterkingfmia at gmail.com. Or you can get me on Twitter. Peter underscore King is my handle. So, uh, before we get out of here, I just wanted to tell you about a couple of really cool things we've got on the NBC Sports podcast platform. Chris Sims has a long sit-down with Rondé Barber on YouTube uh, this week. Uh, I still have my Zach and Julie Ertz podcast from Thanksgiving week up. If you haven't listened to that, a lot of good nuggets about the relationship between the two-time uh, World Cup midfielder champion for the U.S. women's national team, Julie Ertz, and 
her husband, the Super Bowl champion tight end, Zacher to the Philadelphia Eagles. And remember, the Roto World Football Podcast. Fantasy playoffs start this week. Listen to the Roto World Football Podcast to get you ready to set your lineups, to win it all, and to be bathed in fantasy glory. Anyway, thanks a lot for listening this week. Let me know what you think. We'll be back with a fresh podcast as the NFL heads down the home stretch of the 2019 season. Have a great week, everybody. 